Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like mushrooms, pestilence and porridge. Oh, Sam, there's nothing like porridge on an autumnal morning. In fact... With a sprinkling of pestilence. (laughs) Not with a sprinkling of pestilence, with actually with foraged blackberries, which was exactly what I had for breakfast this morning. Or stains, drains and rains, pains, mains and lanes. Lanes I love the idea of going down memory lane. Uh, That is, after all what we professional historians do, but we digress monstrously as ever because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of mountains, mountains, is all about freedom, prejudice, vendetta, elephants, the New Deal in America, female travel writers and the absence of history. Well, if you didn't know that it was all about that, you should listen to last week's podcast episode, which was on the very history of mountains or that the history of feet, the history of feet is all about ancient Rome, Neolithic discoveries, the abominable snowman, disguise, espionage and the very quest for the past. I think that links us back to our lanes, doesn't it? it Feet, wandering lanes, quest for the truth. Yeah, I, I went for a, a cycle ride in mid-Devon the other day with a friend of mine and I was kind of dumbstruck at the amount of tiny, tiny lanes they are and the, the huge effort it must have taken to actually tarmac those lanes i realized i knew nothing about it at all um about the whether there is a history i'm sure there is of the actual doing so and the experience of actually uh, being out in the rural countryside tarmacking lanes it's something i'd like to look into i think it's fascinating now there is a challenge for us <laughs> <now>. <laughs> that that is probably one of the most difficult things you've set us mm. uh, other than a, a tree that bent over that's true so that we had to do the history of the lean um this is extraordinary yeah i love i love devon uh i love those winding lanes what about the the history of accidents on those lanes you very rarely hear about accidents but um you know they're very narrow and windy and twisty and you can barely see where you're going um so maybe we should do the history of lanes yeah let's do the history of lanes coming up i think that would be excellent now um, let me introduce who i'm talking to you're probably all wondering who he is you've probably got no idea at all uh well let me say... Shame if, on you! If if history was a condemned queen, this man... <laughs> 
This man would be the headsman sharpening his mighty axe of research, ready to swing with the true arc of intellectual curiosity to expose the gristle, meat and nerves of the spinal cord of the past. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I imagine we're going down the same rabbit warren of heads today (laughs) from that description. So the man not sitting opposite me because he's across town, uh, very safe in a a little tent uh, in the middle of his house, a recording tent in the middle of his house because we are social distancing in these grim old days. Well, let's just say if he were a historical head. He'd only be the highest, most important head in the entirety of the historical world. A modern-day Leopold von Ranker, a modern-day Thucydides, so elevated is he, is his historical grey matter. Yes, you've guessed it, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a case of one-upmanship with these at the moment, isn't so. it? It's quite fun, I'm enjoying it. I don't know what we're going to do with lanes. I'll have to work on that one already. No. Um, no. <laughs> right. We're doing heads. Uh, we are. Yeah. We are. Whose idea was and that? This was inspired, would you believe, by the opening of a fantastic museum across from my office at the University of Plymouth. It's a wonderful new newly refurbished, newly redesigned, multi-million pound extravaganza of a museum called The Box in Plymouth. And it is incredible. And they've been working on this for the last few years. They've had all sorts of funding come in. The City Museum has been developed. The library has been moved out. But all of the archives around the city of Plymouth have all come into this one central building. And it is fantastic. And it's called The Box because they have quite literally built an archive in the sky. If you look at it, just Google it. There are pictures all over the place at the moment. But it is amazing. They've got this sort of glass-fronted box that has been built at the top of the building to house all of the archives of the Southwest Record um, Centre. Um, record office. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, the university's a partner and I was at a an opening of the Fulston Room, which is the university's seminar room there, uh, which is named after the leading Plymouth architect of the early 1800s, John Fulston. Uh, and when I walked into this space, I was absolutely speechless. As you know, any of you who listen to this podcast or know me as an individual, you'll know <laughs> what a rare thing that is. It's only happened to me twice in the last week. In your life. Uh, which <laughs> is in my life. Um, not only not only did I find my new office, uh, which is the Cottonian collection there. The Cottonian collection is this amazing collection that belongs to William Cotton, uh, uh, of Ivybridge, who um, collected all sorts of paintings and prints and old masters and books and manuscripts and furniture from about 1853 to 1862. And they are all housed in that museum. And let me just say, this: the, 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 the Cottonian Collection Room makes the Bodleian Library, the new reading room at the Bodleian Library, or the British Library Rare Books Room, feel like a porter cabin. <laughs> it is so plush. Um, so I see myself in there, you know, working away. Yeah. Uh, they've got brilliant things. They've got a map 
they've got a, an interactive map that I was that somebody demonstrated for me where you can basically take all the historic maps of Plymouth choose what you want and then overlay them all over each other Ooh, and look that. at the development of the of the city but what made me even more speechless and this was what led to the inspiration for this podcast is that when you walk into the main entrance of the atrium um you see hanging there 14 Victorian Royal Naval figureheads mm. suspended from the sky. And these things weigh several tonnes. And they've already won a prize for uh, the refurbishment and, 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 um, and curation of these, the conservation of them. They've already won a prize for that. But they are incredible. And you are greeted by a the biggest figurehead, which is King Billy, uh, which was carved in Plymouth in 1832. Has he got good HMS facial hair? <laughs> Royal William. It has fantastic... Sam, you will absolutely love this. 13 of these are on are on loan from the National Museum of the Royal Navy. They're all suspended from the ceiling, and they are absolutely, absolutely amazing. The figureheads also all have names. There's Aurora, who's about a 2.5-tall female bust... Uh, made in 1855, and she's the ship which served in Canada. There's a basilisk, there's a Cadmus, Calcutta, Calliope, Centaur, Defiance, Minerva, a mystery figurehead, all in white based on the Greek goddess of wisdom. Royal William himself, King Billy, made in 1833, as I said, uh, which is uh, figurehead of William the Fourth, dressed in all his sort of ceremonial robes and looking very, um, very bearded. Um, there's a Sphinx, Sybil, Tamar, Topaz, and even Windsor Castle, a large figurehead of Queen Victoria, measuring over four meters tall. So there we are, start of a ten. Uh, over to you, because I guess you know quite a lot about uh, ship's figureheads, Sam. Well, I do, actually. Um, and so uh, I've seen many of these in the Devonport Royal Naval Museum, uh, which is currently closed, but uh, it's, got a, it's a wonderful collection and it's worth going to see. Um, it, and I, I th I'm fascinated by ship's figureheads primarily because I think there's much more work that can be done on them. One of the interesting things they, they have been looking at with this this collection is... Um, the conservation is peeling back the layers of paint to see how they were painted before and whether this painting has happened over uh, many generations since they were actually used on the ships or whether it's reflecting their original appearance. And some fairly important work's been done on this recently and it's concluded that actually there were many, many more plain white figureheads than painted and that actually many of them may have been painted in an afterlife. You've got to think about how these figureheads came into the collections which is fascinating where they come from so primarily they come from uh, sheds and store areas in uh, Plymouth in Portsmouth and in Chatham the three uh, major naval dockyards what happens is a ship would then be broke the ship would be broken up when it comes to the end of its life but the ship breakers the people working on the ship were unwilling unhappy um, to get rid of an image which was so clearly linked with the spirit of the ship, um, which raises all sorts of really interesting questions about why they came about in the first place and actually what they did mean to the crew and how that changed. So to understand figureheads, you've got to realise that 
the early figureheads were all lions, all of them. Um, some were crowned, some weren't crowned, but they were all lions and they weren't painted. They were um, a, a fairly kind of dull, varnishy colour. And then that changed very specific at a very specific time in 1727 when the Admiralty permitted the use of figureheads instead of lions, which allowed uh, all sorts of interesting figures, some humans, some beasts, some birds to be created. And they were all somehow related to the name of the ship. So from 1727, you have these extraordinary figureheads that start to be placed on the ships. But then that changes again in about 1860, when they start making ships out of iron. Um, so you've got ships like uh, the Warrior, a merchant version would be the SS Great Britain, and then thereafter they're making ships out of steel. And the world's moved on, and carved timber doesn't have a place on a ship anymore. Exactly why, I think, is a question that really needs answering, because the standard definition at the moment is that ships were made out of iron, therefore there was no place for a carved figurehead. However, the argument for them existing in the first place is that they were put there because they somehow embraced the spirit of the ship and and there was a need to instil an esprit de corps from the captain to the crew. But surely, this is where I, I say surely, that need for an esprit de corps, that need to capture the spirit of the ship, to give the crew an identity, the ship an identity, must have carried on. So how come they suddenly stopped producing figureheads when they certainly could? It was not beyond the realms of them uh, to be able to do it. So I think that's very interesting indeed, and I think it needs to be explained more. Um, so w- one of the general points I wanted to make is that when you look at these figureheads, it's figureheads from a very specific period of time. It's about 1727 to 1860, so not before that, not in the 17th century, um, not in the in the 16th century. Tudor ships didn't have figureheads. And going back, um, medieval period, they didn't. Uh, well, not like this. Anyway, some Viking ships had curious um, uh, sea monsters. Um, and then thereafter, uh, after 1860, they didn't. So it's an absolute specific period in time when Britain's establishing an empire, when all sorts of interesting things are happening. And I'm sure that there are uh, more culturally informed explanations out there if any historian would like to look into it. So not only well, why these things are fantastic to look into, and, and I might just stop this, James, and do a PhD in figureheads. Because you've I got, think you should. Not only have you got the collection themselves, you've got the material culture, you've got drawings of the figureheads made by um, by shipwrights, but those who, who specifically were skilled at art and representing figures. They're beautiful, and they're at the National Archives, and you can see them, and they're absolutely amazing. And they're proposals for figureheads which were accepted and proposals for figureheads that were rejected, which is also interesting. So who is it who's deciding what is accepted, what's, what's permissible to go on the front of a British warship, and what isn't? Now, on top of this, there's an amazing private collection. James, you'd like this with your... Um, collections head on yes there are 60 black and white designs and they are found recently in a private house in tasmania and uh what happens here there's known as a dickerson collection you've got three members of the dickerson family they were responsible for carving the figureheads at plymouth and devonport for you know for years and what happened is that they had copies or they retained the originals of the drawings that were actually approved by the surveyor of the navy and then 
they they kept their own kind of folio of drawings and they carted them off to Tasmania when the family moved to Tasmania. So there's this amazing, possibly a wild archive, James. It may be uncatalogued. You may not know what's in it. it. But there's a private collection in Tasmania, which I'm desperate to get my hands on. Not only this, but there are figureheads from the Russian Navy, the Swedish Navy, the French Navy, the Spanish Navy, the Portuguese Navy, the American Navy. Uh, just I could carry on going. And they're all different. And exactly why is absolutely fascinating. Race is important in this. There are, there are images of uh, Native Americans, there are images of Africans, there are images of people from India, um, all um, specifically, uh, very clearly and carefully uh, created, drawn, and then created in three dimensions. Exactly how, exactly why, and exactly what that meant to the members of the crew is not only a PhD project in waiting, it's a book, uh, and a TV documentary, and a... a uh, and a feature-length uh, blockbusting uh, film, I should think. There we go. Joyce. I think you've got you've got the next decade uh, pretty well sorted out there, Sam. Anyway, go to the um, go to the box. Uh, even better, join the University of Plymouth, and then you can study in the box. Either way, there is an amazing collection of figureheads, which is um, what inspired our our, uh, our our talk here on on heads. Uh, fascinating stuff. James. It certainly is. Um, and um, t- hearing you talk about figureheads uh, and the colours of figureheads. I was very struck when I was doing a research project at the Vassar Museum. The Vassar is this wonderful early 17th century warship. Uh, and at the front of it, there is, of course, a lion, uh, the Vassar lion, so the Vassar royal family, the royal family of Sweden, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, Gustav II. Um, but on the back of it are all these carved figures. And what... Mm. If you have a look at it having been dredged up, of course, it is, it's all very dark in colour. So it's, the wood is a sort of dark brown. But a team of researchers at the Vassar has basically pieced together the colour patterns. And actually, the ship wouldn't have been a boring uh, sort of dull brown colour, but would have been a sort of riot of vibrant colours. And over the last 12 years, they have found and analysed over 1,200 microscopic fragments of colour that show, and what they've been able to do is use the analysis of that to show that 15 particular pieces of sculpture, um, they've they've been able to recreate what the exact colour of them would be. And this was the feature of of a recent... Uh, exhibition uh, that they've had called The Power and the Glory, which shows what the Vassar would have looked like in full Technicolor as she went out of Stockholm Harbour, the pride of the Navy, only to sink, you know, a few hundred yards uh, out into the sea. The the general point here is that uh, the figurehead is not the only heads on some of these ships, particularly the 17th century. Um, And if you looked at the Sovereign of the Seas or any of the other major... Um, amazing, amazing ships in the 17th century. It's when ship design was at its most elaborate. Uh, there are all sorts of other heads, a bit like um, if you look at the west front of Exeter Cathedral, is what I'm thinking about. There, a medieval screen. You've got, I mean, it's completely overloaded, overloaded, loaded with fig- overloaded, overloaded with figures, um, just like ships were. So I think drawing inspiration from the medieval world as well, James, where where yes. having having faces and heads peering at you, gargoyles, do all. I know, I know. I when I was uh, an undergraduate at Oxford, I used to wander down New College Lane just simply to see the extraordinary. Uh, medieval gargoyles there or misery cords the faces that are underneath the carved faces that are underneath seats 
in medieval churches. However, I wanted to take us on a completely different way and I wanted to talk about heads as in heads of state. Mm. Um, and we've looked at this when we've looked at uh, when we looked at monsters uh, before. And remember, we we wrote we've done a podcast on monsters. We've written a chapter on the history of monsters in our book on the Tudors. And one of the things that we looked at there was the way in which the human body and the body politic work together to describe the political organisation of states. And so if you think about the body politic, the head of the body is the monarch, the ruler. And then the, the sort of if you continue that metaphor, the arms and the eyes and the feet and all of that or all the sort of different other different sort of parts of the. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com body politic but what i'm interested what we were interested in when looking at monsters is what happens when that body when the head of that body is corrupted is cankered is monstrous so famously it, uh, john knox that sort of very uh, fiery uh, scottish reformation uh, theologian uh, in his uh, book the trumpet blast against the monstrous regiment of women justified the the removal of a of a of a Catholic monarch uh, by by saying that basically when the body had become corrupted the head was female the the body was monstrous and so could be removed and so what this led to is a whole series of resistance theories resistance tracts that would basically decide what was going to happen if a monarch was tyrannical if a monarch was had a, a particularly an alternative religion and you can follow this all the way through somebody like um somebody like john knox all the way through to john milton in his tract the tenure of kings and magistrates which he wrote shortly after the execution of charles i to justify the beheading of the king and it stemmed, you can follow it all the way back to some of the sort of very conservative literature which talks about the ordering of society. Think here about Shakespeare's great chain of being where you have the sort of the heavens and God and then the angels, you know, in the sort of celestial sphere. sphere. Then you come down onto earth and you've got the, the, the monarchy, you've got the aristocracy and, and then you sort of follow it all the way down the social hierarchy. It's when that gets corrupted that things change and you're able to come in and justify resistance. We can trace this from Calvin 
you know, working on the continent, but but actually working in a much more uh, peaceful uh, way. Um, we can trace it through somebody like John Ponnet, uh, another uh, mid-Tudor writer who in his a short treatise of politic power justified the overthrow of monarchy with a surgical surgical strike. But I think it gets its most potent sort of um, treatment in John Milton. Uh, Milton is a, is a magisterial writer with such an enormous output. Uh, the full title of his tract is The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates proving that it is lawful and hath been held so through the ages for any who has the power to call to account a tyrant or wicked king and after due conviction to depose and put him to death if the ordinary magistrate have neglected or denied to do it and that they who of late so much blame deposing are men that did it themselves. And this was this was printed in February 1649. And remember that Charles I had only just been executed two weeks before. In uh, On the 30th of January 1649, he had his head chopped off at the, outside the banqueting house in, in Whitehall. And what Milton is doing is, after the fact, is leaving a justification for the execution of the monarch. And he begins describing the nature of tyranny. Hence is it that tyrants are not oft offended, nor stand much in doubt of bad men, as being all naturally servile, but in whom virtue and true worth most is eminent, them they fear in earnest, as by right their masters. Against them lies all their hatred and suspicion, Consequently, neither do bad men hate tyrants, but have been always readiest with the falsified names of loyalty, obedience, to colour over their base compliances. And he continues by uh, talking about Parliament calling on the people to support the, their actions and wisdom. Another sort there is who coming in the course of these affairs to have their share in great actions above the form of law or custom, at least to give their voice and approbation, begin to swerve and almost shiver at the majesty and grandeur of some noble deed, as if they were newly entered into a great sin, disputing precedents, forms and circumstances, when the commonwealth nigh perishes for want of deeds in substance done with just and faithful expedition. To these I wish better instruction and virtue equal to their calling, the former of which, that is to say, instruction. I shall endeavour, as my duty is to bestow on them, and exhort them not to startle from the just and pious resolution of adhering with all strength and assistance to the present Parliament and army in the glorious way wherein justice and victory hath set them. When kings or rulers become blasphemers of God, oppressors and murderers of their subjects, they ought no more to be accounted kings or lawful magistrates, but as private men to be examined, accused, condemned and punished by the laws of God. And being convicted and punished by the law, it is not man's but God's doing. And then he goes on to basically describe how the monarch being executed is fair game for these people. So there we have it, the 
the the idea of the monarch or the ruler as the as the head of state and then the execution of the monarch by chopping off the head i've been thinking a lot about um about heads of state and the role the role of heads as we observe what is happening around the world today uh particularly what's happening mm. in america um i mean there's a lot of discussion about knowledge of the health of of a of a ruler and you know a lot of concern about the the health and probity of a ruler and 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 wondering whether we are allowed to have that kind of insight i mean of course we are it once you become a head of state you are no longer a private individual you are the you are the head of the body politic and therefore your health whether it be whether you've tested positive for covid or not is quite rightly the you know property of the nation that makes me think of um of of the of henry the eighth's groom of the stool investigating his urine and feces mm. because it was basically public yep. property essentially wasn't it? it was it was so crucial to the the not the health of the king himself but representative of the health of the nation and that was something that um uh, it was also done in China. I actually think all over the place as well. I, I don't. Well, and you still and you still have it that. today. You still have that concern with the health of, say, for example, a, an American president. The health of the president and those routine health checks that are then made public. And in the case of the incapacity of a president, so the inability to actually discharge their duties, there are set in place a series of protocols that you go through in you know in those circumstances to be able to replace him or her with somebody else who is of fit and sound body and mind uh, and able to properly discharge yeah. their duties so there's yeah i mean the health of health and politics is actually is actually fascinating there's a book for you um there's a research project mm. health politics and lanes and figureheads <laughs> and wooden heads <laughs> Uh, just um, I'm going to wrap up this this portion of, of our, our episode on heads, James, because we've got so much more to do. Um, but I wanted I've just ah. pinged you an email. Have a look at have a look at that. Ah, loving that. What's that? So here we are. It is amazing. Can you can you describe it? I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But the quality of it is this is I'll tell you what it is. It's a it's a terracotta bust of Sir Walter Rawley. Oh, love it. And it is absolutely mind blowing. And I think one of the points we're talking about is you know, you've had these metaphors of the head of the body politic. And let's just stop and think about what, what a head actually looked like. And I, I think this is about as good as you can possibly get. It's, it's Tudor. Uh, it was made by uh, John Michael Riesbrack, a very celebrated Flemish sculptor of the mid 18th century. Um, and. His subject here is is the Tudor Walter Rawley, and the detail of it is absolutely extraordinary. Now you can get a certain amount from portraits, of course, and from descriptions of people, but to actually look at a three dimensional head here is quite quite amazing. James, tell me about his hat. Very rakish. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's very rakish. It's a yes. It's a it's a brimmed hat with a feather coming out of it. At a tremendously jaunty angle, he's got a, yes. a, a wonderfully trimmed beard, a, a fabulous ruff, and also a, a very detailed jewelled kind of um, surcoat of some of some description. So it's just um, it, it's just worth 
thinking about how you actually get close physically to appearance and heads in the past. We wrote a little bit about this in our book on the Tudors in terms of faces, um, just to make the point, essentially, that a surprising variety of people do exist in Tudor portraiture. You might just think it's all about heads of state, it's all about uh, wealthy people, but actually there are all sorts of, of images. Yes, monarchs and noblemen, noble women and their children. But there are also a huge variety of images across a whole social world. And it's interesting how how you actually can, can look at these. Some are formal paintings um, of the monarchy. Others are, are, are much smaller, tiny, often embedded in little lockets or private chests, boxes or drawers for, for personal appreciation and remembrance. So... Uh, there are, there are civic leaders, there are merchants, lawyers, clergy, actors, writers, scholars, artisans, all sorts of people out there. And it's a fascinating way of actually engaging with the past. So, um, yes, you've got busts like this wonderful Walter Raleigh, but of course portraits. And there's a whole world, a whole social life of the of the Tudor world, while we're talking about the Tudors, out there that you can engage with. So a, a huge variety of different sources, um, which which can help you get close to the past. It's also reminded me about uh, broadside ballads from the Tudor period and how they particularly deal with ageing. And uh, they give you a sense of what it was like being and getting old in the past, particularly in how it affected your face. Here, there's a wonderful thing here. Uh, they write of the, the wrinkles in my brow, the furrows in my face. Say the limping age must lodge him now where you... The must give him place. I love that. Absolutely, love brilliant. it. I love that. I love the example of Raleigh's head as well. It makes me think of the time we went to that wonderful church in Stratford upon Avon to do our show, the Holy Trinity Church. Yep. And there was the funeral monument of William Shakespeare there. Yes, that's right. Because oh, the, it's his, his head in the chancel. His, yes, his head and bust kind of peering yes. out in a slightly weird way. Extraordinary. I've just and and it make it connects to a book I've just read. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, which is an extraordinary book. This is a slight aside, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it it's just won a major prize and absolutely brilliant. And my, actually, my book group uh, read it recently. Uh, a brilliant choice. Um, and it is about it's a fictional account of Shakespeare's wife Anne Hathaway, who's named Agnes uh, in this, um, and the impact of the death of their son. Uh, 11-year-old uh, Hamnet, uh, from presumably from p- the plague. But it made me reflect on how historians read historical fiction. And I found that actually I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to because this is a book not only about um, early modern women, it had a lot on gloves, it had a lot on letters and the postal system. And frankly, I'm a professor in that. And I was constantly I was constantly going, Daybell, stop, stop paying attention to that. Just enjoy the beautiful prose and and the wonderful ideas and the creativity. And actually, I felt that I was quite handicapped uh, being uh, a professor of Tudor gender and letters and gloves. And I was I was sort of taken down those alleyways and reading it as an empiricist when I didn't want to. I wanted to read it purely for, you know, the lovely, sumptuous detail. But it's a wonderful book. Uh, You should all go out and read um, Hamnet. Mm. 
It is uh, in hardback, but it's worth the investment. Worth the investment. I like that. Um, yes. I hope you enjoyed that, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to come back with more on heads because, as ever, James and I have only just begun. We can, uh, we can... What have you got coming up, Sam? I'm going to talk a lot about decapitation. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk about decapitation as well. I'm also going to talk about shrunken heads. Um, oh, I'm, I'm going to talk about Oliver Cromwell's head oh, and right. the journey of his head. I'm going to talk a little bit about Washington Irving. Excellent. Yeah, it's Love all, it. All coming your way, guys. Um, do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And please do check out my forthcoming new podcast. I'm doing one dedicated to maritime and naval history, which is being sponsored by the Society for Nautical Research. It's going to be called The Mariner's Mirror. And by the time this episode is out, there may well be a trailer for you guys to find. And you can follow me on at James Dable and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out everything we've done, all the wonderful stuff we've done, we're very proud of, on historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, we'd be hugely grateful. You can either just leave a review on iTunes, that really helps. Or um, if you're feeling generous, then we're on patreon.com forward slash historiesoftheunexpected. And that would help keep this podcast going. It'd be much, much appreciated. Thank you all very much so much for listening, guys. And we'll be with you again soon. We will. We will, guys. And just remember, it is only... 10 weeks till Christmas. <laughs> I love it. Love it. We want some ideas for Christmas shows, don't we? Exactly. Exactly. I've already I'm already keeping uh, notes for our Christmas shows, Sam. Christmas lanes. I think we should do lanes. Christmas That's lanes, Christmas, definitely. Yeah. I think it is. I I want to do patience next. Not as in patience as in urgency uh, and being impatient or the opposite of uh, being impatient, uh, but actually patience. Though the patience view of history uh, I read a brilliant piece by um, uh, the wonderful uh, but late historian uh, Roy Porter this week uh, for a class I'm teaching on cultural history called The Patient's View of Medical History, which is superb. So it's got me thinking about that sort of thing. So I'd yeah. love to do that. Okay, definitely, I've been editing a diary recently for um, the Navy Record Society in which a retired naval officer becomes a surgeon on transatlantic liners in his retirement. He retires from the Navy, becomes a surgeon and then ends up treating the king. <laughs> oh, Sam, we should do it. Yeah. We should make it happen. We're absolutely right. Well, that's what's going, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be in touch soon. Bye. Bye.